0: Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to our briefing. This afternoon, my name is Carol Werner. I'm the executive director of the Environmental and Energy Study Institute. The topic before us this afternoon is how can new transatlantic collaboration overcome barriers to renewable energy goals? I think our eyes this week have really been focused on Paris and the uh, climate talks, the climate summit that is underway there. Uh, the fact that there have been over 150 heads of state that have been there, uh, over 190 nations participating at this very momentous time in our history. And it is a very exciting time, and it is also a very sobering time as we all look to see how we best can deal with these enormous issues and problems that are facing our planet, our individual countries and economies, as well as looking towards the future and what this means for what kinds of opportunities this also uh, brings forward as we really seek to solve these problems and create uh, enormous new promises throughout the world in, in every country, whether it is a major developed country, industrial nation, For a developing nation. And so this afternoon, uh, we are very glad to be bringing this briefing to you, uh, which we are doing in conjunction with the Center for Climate Strategies. And this briefing is really focused on looking at how all levels of government, whether it be at the national level, And how can we look to expand collaboration uh, so that we can more successfully, uh, and as technologies have continued to evolve and policies have continued to evolve, how can we more successfully uh, build those collaborative opportunities and relationships? How can we do this in a better, more successful way? And a way that can
1: help us accelerate the kinds of change that are part of all of the goals
0: that countries around the world are addressing. So the Center for Climate Strategies has embarked upon putting together an analysis, a report that has uh, been funded by the uh, European Union Delegation to the United States uh, to undertake a special look at this topic and so we're going to hear about the formation of that why it is being done, why it is important, some of the areas in which uh, there have been issues, uh, important deliberations and differences in terms of how issues around renewable energy have been tackled, and we're going to hear about what this means in terms of people who have been involved in terms of writing the report. So I will introduce uh, the three, three people who have been involved in the writing of And then I will uh, then introduce two two presenters who have not been involved in the report, but whose governments have been extremely involved in terms of moving renewable energy policy forward in their countries and in terms of looking towards low-carbon economies uh, for their future uh, commitments and, and in terms of looking at their countries how and their governments are moving forward. So I first want to introduce uh, Tom Peterson, who is the president and CEO for the Center for Climate Strategies. Tom founded the center back in 2004, the purpose being to help governments and stakeholders better understand how to formulate res- responses to climate change, how to put together uh, state Plans that have looked at different sectors and how and how best to put together those kinds of initiatives. And this has involved developing and implementing a template for these kinds of multiple objective uh, and consensus-based planning uh, because that is also a very important part of how we can help bring our societies, our communities all together. And so Tom has worked with many states. Mass, but also with a variety of states in Mexico, as well as several provinces in China. And so he is uh, primary in terms of, of leading the discussion with regard to this report that is uh, being formulated. Then we will hear from Hal Nelson, Dr. Hal Nelson, who is a research associate professor at the Claremont Graduate University in the Division of Politics and he is also a senior advisor to the Center for Climate Strategies for residential, commercial, and industrial power supply, and has been helping the center uh, work with the U.S. states uh, to develop climate action plans for the reduction of.
2: approaches that are designed to jointly meet economic, energy, and environmental needs in a fair and equitable manner. And so we're going to focus today on one very critical component of that overall comprehensive process that uh, nations and states and local jurisdictions go through, and that is looking at the electricity supply sector, and more specifically the renewable energy generation portion of that. This uh, report, as I mentioned, is really outgrowth of Transatlantic Dialogue, and um, our mission has been to take a look at how that could be enhanced so that it could really be geared to the future, and the sense is that there are now before us some pretty important barriers that both sides have been grappling with, and it's a time when we might take a second look at how we can more effectively work with each other in these very high priority things that we're already grappling with to see if we might accelerate and expand responses we can bring to them in the future, and in the case of renewable energy, specifically to improve market penetration uh, of renewable energy sources. Uh, this uh, report that Carol referred to is drafted by a series of counterpart offers in the United States and Europe, and will involve a number
1: of reviewers in both uh, regions as well, people who are involved in government as well as the private sector and other institutions.
2: And uh, it is really designed, then, to raise a series of recommendations on the enhancement of collaboration between uh, the European Union and its member states, the United States and its states, and both regions, their localities. So we're going to present some key findings about that have come out of the report and some key recommendations, and then provide you some background behind them. It's going to focus um, on a couple of key areas. One is. The understanding of common ground, which is often misunderstood and overlooked, there has been a sense at times that the two uh, regions have so little in common when it comes to energy issues that it doesn't make much sense to be serious about collaboration. I think we're going to take a look at some reasons to rethink that. It turns out, in fact, there's a tremendous amount that uh, we have in common that sets the stage for much more effective work together. We also have been looking at a common set of challenges regarding renewable energy. And they really boil down to three key areas that we will focus on with you today. It's addressing the issue of cost and the the barriers that that creates, uh, barriers to investment, and then barriers to technology. So cost, investment, and technology are the three key areas that uh, people who have been working on these issues in both regions have been encountering and working diligently to overcome individually and at times collectively, but we think there's now an opportunity to pool those uh, interests in a way that's more effective in terms of addressing them. And the series of barriers uh, also include barriers to the form of collaboration that occurs. And we think that there is a new format it can be used to enhance that in the context of uh, some of the new developments in these issues and some of the new developments in exchange. We want to talk a little bit about that with you today. Um, as we do so, this is focused on renewable energy, but it certainly is exact- applicable to other issues more broadly and how we can be more effective at not only transatlantic uh, exchange and dialogue and cooperation, but uh, those same activities at a multilateral level that are other countries and other regions. So the recommendations um, include, uh, as I mentioned, enhancing these cooperative mechanisms with a real strong focus on cost, technology, and investment. Looking very hard at now the use of virtual mechanisms that can rapidly uh, accelerate the uh, matching of counterparts uh, in both regions and closure of information gaps and mobilization of technical assistance so that these things happen uh, much more quickly, much more fluidly, and at a much more focused level. Um, and also, as I mentioned, that it not be restricted to only uh, Europe and the United States, the European Union and the United States, but other regions that can uh, play a synergistic role in this relationship because the issue of global, excuse me, the issue of renewable energy is a global one. Carol mentioned a little bit about The uh, meeting in Paris that's underway right now on the climate change issue, but one of the very key findings and realizations coming from that process, which has been clear for some time, is that it's going to be extraordinarily difficult to address the climate change issue unless we are vastly more efficient in the way we use energy and move to a global renewable energy platform. So the European Union, the United States have been leaders in those kinds of transitions, but they're critical to everybody worldwide. We also know that this is going to take more than just governments working by themselves. This is going to require effective partnerships with third parties, public-private partnerships to ensure that this work gets done in a way that's quick and well done and collaborative. And we'll tell you a little bit about what some of the key aspects of that might need to be going forward. In terms of common ground, one of the quick places to start is the goals that exist today for renewable generation of electricity and some of these goals have come along even during the course of this project and they include new goals at the European Union level not only for greenhouse gas emissions reductions, but for the expansion of renewable energy use and these are substantial new targets that have been established. We have similar targets established by the President of the United States in addition to that, as many of you know, uh, all of you I presume, we are in the United States in the middle of the implementation of the rulemaking for the Clean Power and, Air, and the Clean Air Act, Section 111D. We'll show you in a moment a little bit about the implications to that, but they're quite significant for renewable energy. In the United States as well, as in European member states and localities in both places, there are a series of goals already in place that include renewable energy and targets the timetables towards expansion going forward. So we already have a wide range of goals in place that relate to renewable energy and more to come either directly or through implication through the United Nations Framework Convention process that's underway right now. We would expect post Paris there will be pretty significant focus on renewable energy and how that can be expanded going forward. So we think this report is very timely. And the mechanisms needed to accomplish this are also uh, timely and quite viable. And I mentioned the Clean Power Plan. If you look at the orange line on the top, this is one of the uh, ways that we've been able to portray the expansion in renewable energy that is expected as a consequence of the implementation of this rule. This is going to vary state by state. This is going to be very kind of vary based on the decisions that the states do, but overall. This is an energy information administration projection. Implications are a pretty substantial increase in the use of renewable energy to meet these new carbon reduction standards. Similarly, the goals that have been established in the European Union uh, include in them very significant implications for renewable energy. We can see the increases that are expected under the new goals um, in green and similar to the United States, the scenario going forward is a very significant increase. One of the things we have in common is a tremendous amount of geographic variation. Not all member states in the European Union are created equal and not all U.S. states are created equal. And one of the ways in which they vary is energy prices. In the fact, their energy systems and energy structure overall. So we see quite a bit of variation in this particular set of illustrations. It's focused on electricity prices and we're going to show you a little bit further what some of the prices could look like. But that diversity has been a tremendous challenge to policymakers as well as technology providers and investors on the one hand. On the other hand, that diversity creates a rich environment for learning and for
1: innovation and for adaptation going forward to new circumstances that we will face because the variations that we have already have encompassed a lot of the future challenges that we are expecting. And there's a lot to learn from
2: them. In the European Union and in the United States, we've also faced very significant economic hardship, continue to face very significant economic challenges, and uh, policymakers and others in the community of interests around energy issues have been working very, very hard on identifying success strategies for energy at large and clean energy in particular. In terms of how that can succeed in the face of economic hardship, a lot of work, a lot of experimentation, a lot of testing of actual instruments of policy and programs in the renewable energy area. And the listing here that we have in front of you is a set of a half a dozen of the most critical strategies that have emerged from work in the United States we've been associated with in terms of the way that one selects and designs particular policy actions to advance renewable energy so that they also expand per capita income employment and economic growth so we've learned how to do this and how to succeed but we've learned also some things don't work so well and there's some caution associated there so both sides now have learned quite a bit from this whole experience of economic hardship and what we're founding the uh, purposes of this report was to identify things that have worked in both countries in the face of the economic hardship and to use them as a platform for moving forward because it is at the top of the list of common ground variables that policymakers have. We've seen growth in renewable energy. We are expecting more growth in renewable energy. It has grown in spite of numerous barriers. There are yet greater barriers in the future, but the scale-up projections in terms of need and opportunity are very significant in both places. As I mentioned before, there are these three fundamental, fundamental barriers uh, under which a series of other things fall that have been in the way of the successes that we would really like to have. They result in uh, include cost, uh, technology and investment. And as you can imagine, these are interrelated. So, to take a quick look at the cost issue and some common ground there, when we look at the United States and Europe at what renewable energy costs or what its price tag looks like in various uh, uh, forms in comparison to conventional sources of uh, power generation. And what we see pretty quickly when we look into these comparisons is that already today, renewable energy has become quite cost-competitive. Renewable energy prices and costs have been falling. In some cases, they are now more competitive on a pure cost and price basis than conventional alternatives, and that trend is deepening, and is expected to continue and has very significant implications. Here's a quick shot for the state of Virginia, my home state, uh, that came out of a speech from the president of Appalachian Power earlier in October, who was uh, breaking the news to shareholders and others about the realities of new investments in energy. And these are where the prices stood, I think this is October 17 or 28, which in the state of Virginia in terms of the price tag associated with purchasing energy from different sources. So we can see in a coal state that wind and gas in particular have really accelerated in terms of being uh, cost-competitive. This is not a unique situation. We see in Europe uh, similar trends, similar breakdowns. What we see is this slew of generation technologies that are renewable and those that are fossil-based. And there's a lot of variation. This is a snapshot of what you can see, just as we've seen in the United States, is already a number of the critical uh, technologies for renewable energy are uh, either close to being cost-competitive or past that point and are fully competitive now. So when we talk about cost and what we do to try to bring cost barriers down, one of the things that's helpful to do is understand what those costs really are comprised of. And we put them in two loosely defined categories that we call hard cost and soft cost. Imagine hard cost is the cost of acquiring the technology. Soft cost is the cost associated with putting it in place various arrangements, whether it's signing approval, uh, uh, financing, etc. What we know is that those cost profiles have changed significantly where there have been focused efforts on bringing costs down, particularly on what we call the soft cost side. And that creates a tremendous opportunity in terms of peer learning, so people in the United States can learn from people in Europe who have had success in bringing this very important component of cost down. So there have been very specific uh, tests of instruments and approaches to do that, a lot of learnings and a lot of success stories. But we certainly have the ability to understand more clearly how to go about bringing costs down, to learn from each other as a means for doing that. Investment mobilization is a major need. Uh, policy doesn't work unless it has investment associated with it and they are uh, related. Policymakers are reluctant generally to move forward with new policies unless there's some assurance that those can be financed and it's clear that governments alone are not capable of supporting the financing that is going to be needed for a new generation and expanded generation of clean energy. And as a consequence, focus on investment barriers and investment mobilization uh, has already been quite critical and will continue to be one of the most critical uh, parts of this conversation. I I think so far what we've seen in Paris is that that, in fact, has dominated the commentary by heads of state and others what to do about the funding issue. Cost cap issue is certainly a key one that we've just talked about. We've also talked about economic hardship has had negative effects in terms of reducing absorptive capacity for these new technologies and also stifling uh, some of the prioritization of it. On the other hand, it has resulted in innovation and adjustment that is creating a new platform for activity. We've also seen shifts in policy and economic shifts that have not favored investments in renewable energy in ways that they might have that those shifts are continuing. And I think part of what we'll talk a little bit further about is how policy actions can actually help those shifts now move in the direction to to encourage and favor uh, investment. We've seen competition for scarce dollars, a lot of competition for energy-related dollars. And as everybody knows, a lot of those dollar bills have gone into oil and gas, and there's been a concern that that squeezed out dollars that could have gone into renewable energy or energy efficiency. But it's a longer story and it's one that's changing because the risk and return profile of renewable energy is starting to look more favorable and there are ways in which it can be made even more favorable than it already is. There are also ways that we can do a better job of developing mechanisms for financing that are better tuned to policy needs. And this combination of looking at policy and investment at the same time for policymakers and investors and the actual uses of these technologies together looks like it may be one of the most critical forms of collaboration that can help turn things in a favorable direction. Technology remains, as always, a very important part of the equation. It is directly related to cost. It's also directly related to investment. And some of the key aspects of technology that are critical in renewable energy, whether it's on-grid or off-grid, involve the integration with the grid, the expansion of efficiency and productivity and design of transmission lines plus the access that connects renewable sources with the grid. Storage systems remain a very major issue going forward and the ability to generate renewable energy from various technologies that allow level that's efficient enough to match the cost needs and the scale of the needs of implementation remains a very critical challenge. And with that, I'm going to turn to Dr. Nelson who will have a little bit Closer look at a number of these issues and how we can understand them. All right, thanks, Tom and Carol. I um, appreciate this opportunity to come out here from sunny California and it's not snowing, so I really appreciate that. Uh, when Tom you know, got me in, involved in this project, I was super excited because we have these jurisdictions in the US, California, Texas, New York that are world leaders like Germany, like other members of the European Union. And there's so much that we can learn from each other to help diffuse these best practices and these experiences across jurisdictions. And so that's what got me really excited about this. Um, and so I'm going to talk to you more about some of the policy bar- policies that have been uh, successful in redu- reducing these barriers. And uh, briefly, then I'll turn it over to Dale, and uh, he'll he'll talk about how these exchange mechanisms can work to help uh, diffuse these lessons learned and this information. So we see essentially three primary areas for collaboration on on this cost issue, on investing, and on the technology. And so these are kind of there's some subcategories here. Uh, Let me see if my pointer works. Uh, So I'll just have to see how it And uh, so this, this is an overview. And so we briefly going to talk about some of the what's considered the most important policies to drive renewable energy in uh, both jurisdictions. And in the U.S. it's certainly been the production tax credit. So if you look at one policy that's helped the wind industry the most, it's probably this one. And it's uh, evidenced by this kind of boom and bust cycle you see when the and the tax credit scheduled to expire, investment goes way down. And so that's kind of the counterfactual. I think, wow, this is, has been a really important policy. And I think the question now is moving forward is how do we learn from the U.S. experience and the European experience, especially on this production tax credits, to reform these type of policies to be more economically efficient and more sustainable during uh, downturns? And it's, it's counterintuitive, but you think that this type of policy would be less important during the downturn, but it's actually more because more important because you see uh, the difference between gas, for example, natural gas generation and renewable generation increase as demand goes down, and so you need you know something to fill that gap even more during during recession. And so this has been a really critical policy, and uh, and something that you know we need to to better understand across jurisdictions. Similarly, the investment tax credit. This, this, this policy has kind of single-handedly been uh, assigned as driving the growth in distributed photovoltaic, so rooftop solar, particularly. And you can see how a 30% tax credit, when you've got a really high cost in like 2008, high cost, high capital cost, um, is worth a lot more than as these capital costs have gone down. And the profit with this policy is it is cyclical. So the demand for these tax credits dries up is businesses don't have tax liabilities during bad times. And so what happens is to attract investors, you get these uh, tax equity investors, and they have higher rate of return requirements. And so it ends up raising the cost of the installed project when you have 9 or 10% loan on the on the system. And so there's other ways around this, but I think the, the key here is that this, this policy mechanism really driven the third party ownership model. Does anybody in the room have a solar panel on the roof? Okay, a couple. And so you know you have uh, an opportunity now to, to actually lease that system from someone else. And so they come in, the developer owns it, and you get, they get the tax credit. And that has really lowered the capital costs and made solar, rooftop comp, solar competitive with grid, you know, grid electricity prices in a lot of states. Um, in Europe we're seeing, we see a lot more uh, policies around feed-in tariffs and feed-in premiums. And the premium you can think of is just kind of a, a bonus, on top of whatever the market price of electricity is that the renewable developer gets, the renewable project uh, proponent gets. And uh, California and the EU are moving more towards a kind of competitive bidding. And so this is basically auctions uh, to help increase economic efficiency and improve the performance of these instruments in terms of not giving overly generous subsidies to renewable developers. So there's all kinds of opportunities for collaboration here, especially between California and European uh, states in terms of how, how to set up these bidding markets. So, you, most of you are probably familiar with renewable portfolio standards, those are more common here in the United States, um, and these are really critical during recessions as well because demand dries up for renewables during recessions, and when you have this type of a standard, the, the law is basically telling the utilities that they need to provide a certain amount, a certain percent of the power, be renewable to, to what they deliver, and so we've seen big jumps in these renewable targets in recent years, especially California and New York just last week, I think, and uh, Vermont and Hawaii are, are other large, uh, have large targets. So Tom showed you that graph of the hard cost versus the soft cost, and in the report we, we break that out. And one of the big differences between Germany and the U.S. in terms of Germany has a much lower soft cost portion. And one of the biggest components of this is customer acquisition costs. And so it's marketing, it's like how do you get new customers? And so one of the these kind of new programs um, here to try to reduce these customer acquisition costs are these group purchasing. And so basically what happens there is where a neighborhood association or some community basically goes out and says, hey, we want you know solar on these 20 or 30 or 50 homes. And then they get bids from... Uh, from solar developers to do that. So you get economies of scale, you get reduced uh, customer acquisition costs, reduced interconnection costs, and whatnot. So this is a really promising new approach and uh, that will help lower, I think, these soft costs in the US and you know will help us kind of learn from our uh, from our European colleagues. And then Tom mentioned as well the uh, the need to attract uh, additional investment. And historically, unless you're a tax department on these tax schemes, there hasn't been a lot of opportunities for institutional investors to invest in renewable energy. And what we're seeing now is some new securities that basically take the cash flows from renewable projects and securitize them and they're exchange traded. And so now you can can actually go and buy these things yourself. And what that does is it brings in a huge pool of money and what that money has been doing and what this graph shows, these are mergers and acquisitions of 2014 um, of renewable energy projects. And so that institutional money is looking for projects. And so this is a really critical uh, development in order to reduce the cost of financing for renewable projects by opening up a whole new source of supply of money essentially. And this is a a graph from California. And so this has to do with the technical aspects of uh, uh, renewables. Where renewables, the sun doesn't always shine, sometimes clouds come in, the wind doesn't always blow. And so that gives the grid managers problems in the sense that they have to provide a certain voltage across the grid at all times within a certain band. And so uh, integrating these renewables into the grid is a major challenge. And it's one of the the reasons that renewable... uh, output doesn't fetch the same price as the electricity from like a coal plant or a gas plant, because the gas plant can say, hey, for sure we're going to deliver you this power at this, this hour. And, you know, it's harder for renewable projects to do that. And so, here's an example from California where you see you know, the blue line in the middle of the top and the middle there. that's uh Actually, that you can't see that, but 2013 is essentially uh, the blue line, and that shows the net load, the net demand for electricity in a region in California. And you can see how that that uh, net demand in the afternoon, uh, in the kind of the middle of the graph, it says hour there, 24 p.m. that net demand is going to drop as solar keeps coming, more and more solar keeps coming into the grid in California. So, that, hey, that sounds great, right? But then if you look over on the right and you see that steep... Uh, slope up. Basically what the state, what the grid managers need are what they call flexible resources that can come online essentially instantaneously to meet the demand as the sun goes down. And so that's why California has authorized about 1, 1.2 1. 2 gigawatts of storage capacity. And So this is coming in in different ways. Battery storage and uh, railroad cars that they you know, send up the hill during uh, at night and they bring them down slowly to generate electricity, all kinds of interesting technologies. But that's essentially the, the technical uh, problem that you face when you have a large amount of renewable energy in the system. And so these are some of the these are some of the kind of uh, opportunities for diffusion across the jurisdictions and kind of learning that, uh, that this that we can uh, hope for from this exchange mechanism of what we need. And then finally, I do a lot of work on transmission lines and other energy infrastructure siting. And so, if you follow the Texas story, it's got this kind of miracle story about uh, they've sited 20,000 megawatts of wind or something in the last 10 years. And it's really only been possible because they spent seven billion dollars building transmission lines. And before, you know, the, before the transmission lines were in place, they had to shut off the wind power when the wind was blowing too strong. They had to disconnect it. It's called a curtailment so if you're a renewable developer, you hate that, right? And in California, they have a spot market, and so you get these negative prices. Basically, you have to pay to put your wind power onto the grid. And uh, so then the, the operator will curtail or stop that, that uh, feed into the grid. And so, you know, especially for wind and for large for large renewable projects, you need to have adequate transmission. The problem is nobody likes transmission lines. Well, except for the utilities, um, but if you're a resident, you know you, these high voltage power lines are associated, or often associated with significant health and safety issues. And so, uh, in Texas, they had a great, very open, transparent uh, public participation process where they actually included the citizen concerns into the design work and these routes they. Went from having 3,000 miles of power lines to 3,600 miles, basically added 20% more of the distance in order to to help meet the community requirements, and um, so they were very reactive, very uh, responsible for citizen concerns, and so this. This, but this transmission line availability is really a critical issue, and one of the things that we can definitely learn from each other about. So, at this point, I'm going to turn it over uh, to Dale for his ideas on, uh, on transatlantic collaboration.
3: Thanks. Uh, I know you've reached, we've reached the halfway mark and we have 20 speakers,
4: so I'll be very, very brief. Um, plus, I know that the, the joy and the, the benefit of these kinds of conversations is having input and uh, dialogue with you, the audience, uh, about that, which we're, we've shared with you. The conversation in Paris has touched on this very critical issue of cities and how violent uh, they are in terms of mitigating uh, the, uh, the emissions of greenhouse gases, but also um, coping with the effects of Climate change, sea level rise, uh,
1: storm events, and and the like. And as the uh, conversation strengthens about
4: the the role of cities and other subnational governments, states, regions,
1: invariably the question then is going to be: Well, how do these entities work with
4: each other? Sort of new business model of international collaboration. And these are some of the ways that we've talked about it.
0: What is really important in terms of hearing from these two speakers is, as I mentioned at the very outset of the briefing, is that in the case of both Germany and the United Kingdom, we have countries that have really been leading the way in terms of what they are doing with regard to looking at ways to drive down their greenhouse gas emissions, to bring renewable energy to the fore in terms of diversification of their power sectors. And what's in, what has always been important to us is in terms of how they have done it, what's been involved, what led to their success, how did they bring it, their their communities, um, their uh, whole governments together in support of this. Um, because we think that there are very, very important lessons to learn from this. Dr. Mao has, uh, prior to joining the embassy, worked at the federal, Uh, at the German Federal Ministry for Environment, Natural, uh, Nature Conservation, and Nuclear Safety, where he was responsible for climate and energy policy and a variety of international environmental uh, topics. And, of course, he has been an important collaborator in the Ministry's development of Germany's energy policies that have been targeted uh, to develop cost-effective uh, approaches towards greater use of renewable energy and also higher energy
1: efficiency. Thank you so much, Adam, for your introduction. I'm happy to share a few experiences made so far in Germany on the expansion of renewable
5: energies, which is uh, our cornerstone of our energy policy. It should be stated that um, the policy for renewable energies leads back to the 90s, so we didn't started this uh, just recently, but it's a long tradition, we tried different instruments out and basically uh, the most successful instrument so far is the, well known, uh, the feed-in tariff, but actually it's a little bit more than just uh, giving a fixed price for renewable energy production. The system works like that, so in Germany everybody who produces renewable energy gets a 20-year guaranteed fixed Feed-in tariff. Um, that feed-in tariff, as you can see here, has led to uh, remarkable growth of renewable energy in the electricity sector over the last years. It's a little bit more than only feed-in tariff, it's also um, 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 guaranteed grid access, which is really important in order to sell uh, your uh, electricity and priority transmission and distribution and the money spent for the system is distributed among all the consumers. It's not tax money it should be noted as well. And the whole energy policy uh, basically stands on two basic feet, like the energy efficiency. So first of all, we try to reduce our energy demand and then uh, cover this as much as possible with renewable energy. And of course, in between, you need integration of the renewable energies um, uh, infrastructure. So basically this system uh, has now changed in Germany so we have added um, economic instruments like tender schemes and so we are uh, together with our neighbors we have a mixed system you could say so renewable energies are supported in feed-in
1: structure but also using tendering schemes and economically
5: the target in Germany is quite ambitious, so we plan to have at least 80% renewables in the electricity sector by 2050 and overall of at least 60% renewable energy for the total energy demand in Germany by 2050. So at the moment we stand at 30%, around 30% in the electricity sector. So that basically means you completely change structure of your uh, electricity sector. We came from, as you can see here on the left
1: bar, we came from very fossil produced electricity. We stand now around 30% renewables but
5: still use a lot of coal, 45% altogether, and the future looks like almost only renewable energies and a few others, basically gas and industrial production. And the renewable energy, electricity, in Germany basically means uh, wind and solar, so these are the two
1: main uh, resources we can use in Germany. We have a more
5: or less uh, stable use of hydro and it is limited to
3: close to 5%, and biomass is also limited, so we talk about
5: uh, wind and solar and a growing share of offshore wind. Well, if you look at the economical situation, it's like in the meantime, wind and solar. The only uh, low carbon alternatives would be nuclear or hot coal and CCS, and basically these are already much more expensive than wind and solar in Germany, and on top of that, they are not accepted in Germany. It's both possible. Uh, Nuclear actually is not possible anymore because we have a a nuclear act which phases out nuclear electricity until the year 22. Uh, Hot coal CCS would be possible, but if you try to do the journey, it's a hard job. Uh, share of renewables,
1: you can see over the last 10
5: years has more than tripled, and this figure is already outdated now, so the first half of 2015 already stood at more than 30% renewables in the electricity sector. And that's basically the total in the south of Germany, you can see how that developed over the last 15 years, and basically went in the north. Um, with regard to greenhouse gas emissions, if you calculate that solar already save 150 million tons of greenhouse gas emissions each year with the use of renewables, that is uh, basically 15 to 17 percent of our total emissions. And if you're saying it's different than in the United States. Most renewable production, like solar PV, are owned by private people. And the utilities only own a very small share and basically that's one reason why they're struggling at the moment. The challenges in Germany are definitely uh, building on the infrastructure. One reason is most of the electricity from renewables is produced in the north while our industrial centers are located in the west and south. So we would need something around four huge high voltage Transmission lines, and as pointed out before, it's a tough job, so it takes a while to build these lines, and people don't like it. Second big challenge is that in the near future, already today, we have a very fluctuating input from renewables. So this is how a typical year in the winter could look like in a few years: uh, almost no production from renewables and then other times of the year, you can have 100% even more from renewables. So what you need is a very flexible um, power plant park and base load is no longer needed. makes no sense anymore. So we work on flexibility solutions. That's basically what Tom called uh, technology barriers. Uh, actually, that's, that's our uh, development at present and in the future. production and consumption patterns and in the long run we work on different storage solutions so these are the main four um, technology solutions for flexibility storage at the moment as everybody knows is quite expensive and of course um, as longer the storage goes we also need long term storage the price at the moment are very high so this is um, this is the outlook for the future and of course storage is Uh, the prices for storage and batteries, particularly, are dropping dramatically. Um, Next thing should be mentioned. So the the rate for the German kilowatt power is quite expensive compared to this country, but if you look at the total uh, expenditure for electricity, people in Germany, the household in Germany basically spends the same amount of money that people over here spend for a household because German. Um, consumers only uh, use one third of the electricity compared to US. Um, good news is that although we still carry the burden of high feed-in surcharges for the money spent on the removals distributed uh, to all the consumers, this is quite
1: high for 20 years, but in future new installed capacities are quite cheap for Germans and for everybody else. So um, this is a German story that we have
5: a package of high costs from high priced electricity in the past.
1: Basically because the prices for renewables fell down drastically, particularly solar PV, 80% in only
5: a few years. Um, The other positive effect on the wholesale market is yes, that with renewables coming in for free, basically, the wholesale market price uh, went down in Germany and decreased by over 40% over the last four years, and that's a very good news for industry, so industrial electricity prices are lower than ever. So, overall, if you look at all the costs and benefits, you see that the benefits, in summary, uh, outweigh the costs but of course it needs a lot of initial uh, investments. Uh, Another advantage is that we highly depend on energy imports in Germany and renewable energy is basically the only resource which drives down, which brings down our dependency from energy imports. Then with uh, regard to jobs, we create much more jobs with renewables than we lose on the traditional energy uh, era
1: That is why in
5: Germany the uh, policy on that, the so-called energy
6: I've seen for uh, really interested in in spirit report and couldn't come back at a time, as you mentioned, with the Paris negotiations. Um, and we'll talk um, in my slides. I have some slides. Great. Uh, a little bit about um, how Paris particularly sorry before the innovation story, which I think is particularly relevant for some of the uh, now, so, I'll speak just for a couple of minutes, and what I want to do is take a step back and talk a bit about what's driving some of the decisions around renewables, particularly from a UK perspective. And I think the first thing I wanted to say clearly is that from our perspective, we don't see renewables as an end in themselves, we see them very much as a means to an end. So, really, the goal that we're aiming for here is low carbon uh, economy, not just power, and it's a huge role for and renewable power and renewable transport within that. Um, But ultimately what's driving this is low carbon and we want to make sure that the energy mix across the pieces is is the least cost one to deliver that. Um, In terms of our commitment, it's um, widely known that the UK is one of the first countries to commit to legally binding um, greenhouse gas emissions targets and they remain amongst the strongest in the world, so our emissions by 2050 need to be 80% lower. And they were in 1990, and we have a fairly uh, detailed requirements to set out 5 yearly, um, budgets to restrict our emissions. So we have budgets now set until the mid-2020s, by which point the UK's greenhouse gas emissions will be half the level that they were in 1990. So uh, that transition is kind of really clearly set out. That I means we're hugely reliable, hugely reliant on low-carbon technologies, including renewables. Clearly, if we're looking to cut our emissions, we need to start with the car sector. Um, and just a couple of kind of figures there. So around a third of the UK's emissions of mainly come from power. We still have a significant amount of coal on the system, although not for much longer, which we will come on to. One thing I want to be clear here is that quite a lot of the sense that as the US has made a transition from coal to gas, that um, the UK and the EU residents, have huge amounts more coal generation capacity because we're buying more coal. Certainly in the UK, I can say that's not true, we've got a bit of a new, coal plant, new coal plants. However, there has been a significant amount of coal still on the system. But that is something we want to something about. Um, so just last month, the Secretary of State for Energy in the UK announced that we wish to be the first country to phase out unabated coal and to do so by 2025. Um, that will be a uh, major achievement if you want to deliver it, we still have around 18 gigawatts of coal on the system so we'll lay out a consultation at the start of next year on that and we'll see that phase out beginning from 2023 um, and, and we can see here the comments really I think very clear sense from that Energy Minister who is a member of the Conservative Government that she doesn't see a role for relying on Fifty-year-old coal generation in a, in a modern country like the UK. But we will need new generation to, to counter to that, so we've got a build, so at the same time she puts into um, a nuclear new build fleet, so we have our first plant due to come online in the 2020s, followed by two further funds. By the 2030s we could be seeing nuclear account for around 30% of the UK's generation. Uh, we'll need a huge amount of renewables, so we expect 5 times 20 to have around 30% of the power in the UK grid coming from renewables. We'll also need some new gas, very flexible source, and we'll be reviewing our capacity market to make sure that is coming along. I mentioned renewables clearly the focus for today, um, and we do expect significant penetration, so by times 20 we're looking at at least 12 gigawatts of onshore wind and so that 10 gigawatts of offshore wind, which is about half of the world's offshore wind alone just in the UK. Um, and to speak briefly about what that regime has looked like, um, there's been a transition through time. So to begin with, we started with a renewables obligation. Um, involves trade law certificates, so suppliers are required to meet a proportion of their power through renewables, and um, then that creates a market trade law certificates, I guess like a renewable portfolio standard in the US context. Since last year, we have transitioned to a new support regime, um, which is based loosely around feeding tariff but has a mechanism called contract for difference, which means that. Should the market price uh, exceed the feeding tariff, you will see developers pay back to the government. When the wholesale price of electricity is below that cost, we will top up the payment. And then the very much the transition here is to move from a system of trade certificates, where you have unlimited supply but variable costs, variable support, through to a system where developers know upfront exactly how much uh, revenue they will be generated and we found that that has um, big benefits to the cost of capital and projects and the services that the developers have. Um, and the mechanism for all those contracts is to have an auction. Um, and this is, yeah, this is very much right, so, yeah, There's a lot more information on, on, on that. Point. One of the more recent announcements that we've said is we really want to take the time to think how we, the UK, can best Spend that money. So when we have a constrained auction pot, uh, what are the best technologies for us to be funding? And it was interesting that a number of the speakers today have highlighted the extent to which some technologies' costs have already fallen. So when Secretary of State announced that our commitment to phase out unrated coal, uh, she also said there are some technologies, solar and onshore on wind, where the costs have fallen so significantly. It that we will expect those technologies going forward to stand on their own feet. Um, so where technologies, where our developers already have a contract, that would be seen right through to the end. So these are 15-year contracts, so it's still a significant pipeline coming through in the UK. But we want to focus on support, and this is kind of why I find offshore wind in particular. So around uh, half of the world's offshore wind is installed in the UK, and that means we think even though we are a small country, that's an area where we have a huge amount of potential to make a difference, um, and that's why we said that within this parliament, which runs to 2020, there will be three further rounds of support for offshore as well as India. Um, and finally, I guess again, bringing it back to what is the most, what's the best role we as the UK Clearly, we're not going to solve this problem alone, and um, this is why I'm so pleased that the Paris started with this announcement from the UK. So I should say join the US. So UK, US, China, India, Brazil, and another 15 countries hopefully will have sent this announcement on Monday. An absolute huge kickstart to global uh, R&D funding for clean energy. So 20 countries committed that over the next five years their funding for this will at least double. And also private sector investments, notably Bill Gates, Richard Manson on our side. Um, agreed to complement that with their own new funding for innovation. I think what's particularly relevant for today, and reports like the one we just heard, um, is that what will be required there is increased coordination, as commitment from all countries, that, uh, that coordination, exchange, transparency, working together, will need to increase make most of that money. Um, and that's really a huge great start. So thank you very much. To summarize, I think we're going to see huge amounts of continued water renewables within that local framework in the UK very right? happy to answer any further questions. thank you. And so that
1: was
0: a wonderful um, uh, explanation and uh, what the UK has done where they are and how they are looking forward including Summit. And so now we're going to turn back to Tom in terms of looking at some of the other recommendations in the report. And after, in after that, it will be an opportunity to really look at some of your comments and advice, uh, suggestions for things that perhaps, if you
6: haven't heard, things that you think should be part of the report as well. Tom. Thank you, Carol. And. Yeah. Yeah, I
1: guess we
2: a Um the commented in particular on this transition that we see with an opportunity need to need go from current format uh, of collaboration to new format and one that really capitalizes on everything you've heard the speakers walk through today and that Truthfully, is has been of the iceberg in comparison to the amount of opportunity and need and activity that couldn't be generated. But we need a new platform, a new collaborative platform. that's really up to that task. Some components of that involve thought leadership, peer learning, technical assistance, and that, open, that leads to market expansion. As again, you've seen these two different pieces in these key thematic areas um, brought forward. It's really now an opportunity to coalesce along these lines. Uh, a lot of conversation about counterparts, there has been some counterpart exchange, some counterpart dialogue, some counterpart uh, peer interaction, but because of the mechanisms that we've used and the way we've used them, it's been rather limited in comparison to what it can and should be. So we would specifically be uh, recommending that counterparts include all those of government, and and the sub-national governments uh, in particular have been very, very active and have been close to many of the actual trials of the instruments and actions in renewable energy, and they are where a lot of the implementation actually takes place. They also are very close to the partners that they work with in the private sector and civil society in terms of making these things happen. So we would recommend that we do a better job of including a full range of counterparts not only within government but also uh, in non-governmental sectors and that cuts across a variety of both stakeholders and other supporting partners who can become a part of this community of people who can be working together to crack a knot on the issues that we still have in front of us. Third party partnerships, as you mentioned at the outset, are likely to be quite crucial because it is difficult for governments uh, always to do what they need to do uh, alone. And specifically, we think that uh, third parties can help in terms of mobilizing funding uh, from the donor community to be able to support capacities that are needed to put in place this kind of technical assistance and peer learning that needs to take place. Also, they can be very proactive in terms of outreach, uh, bringing counterparts together and bridging some of those gaps that need to take place. The regional collaboration issue, as I think you've you've heard from multiple speakers, and most recently from Allison, is a very big one, because this isn't just about uh, the European Union and the United States. This is about all of us globally. And this platform for collaboration that we see an opportunity and a need for between uh, the transatlantic parties is something that really could be linked to other regions with um, a number of highly synergistic effects. In reality, we already see exchange happening at this level, but just as the transatlantic exchange has been limited, multilateral exchanges have been limited as well. So we're looking have a new form of collaboration that can really cut across the barriers in all regions combined. And with that, I think what we're looking forward to is hearing a bit from you, your thoughts on some of these findings and some of these recommendations, questions you have about uh, uh, contributions you would make in terms of what we should be considering. We will be sharing uh, this report with others in terms of formal review, but also in terms of comment from uh, participants who would like to be a part of these counterpart exchanges to be sure this is who be addressing their highest priorities and looking for that response from uh, government leadership in the European Union and its member states, in the United States, and its states and the local jurisdictions in both countries. Along with responses to the non governmental partners, so that we can take some next steps in terms of actually putting in place some of these enhanced collaborative mechanisms uh, that are really focused on the issues that we've talked about today
1: around renewable energy. And with that, Carol, I'm going to turn it back to you. Okay. Great. So, as Tom said,
0: this is actually an opportunity to uh, for, for you all to provide some feedback to what you uh, to ask questions of our speakers, to uh, offer your your comments. So, do um, we have any questions? You guys do. Um, yes. My name is yes. Bill and um, It seems like Tuesday, presentation here is largely Thank mm-hmm. you.
5: Not a, solar, not a single rooftop solar, you don't have to, to sell that on the market, but uh, the bigger plants now starting, um, they have to sell their electricity on the market, and then exactly that happens um, that you try to produce when you get uh, the best price and not only uh, try to sell as much as possible. And that shifts also towards uh, smaller producers in the future, and this is exactly what we need more flexibility and uh, have the market controlling that.
6: Just an additional point, also to agree, and I think we see that there are potentially kind of technological barriers to the grid being as smart as it could be and to policies which seem to make a lot of sense, sometimes like time of use and and, and that's why it's the first step of what we've put a lot of our efforts into in the UK has been getting the grid itself to be as smart as possible. So in terms of developing up smart metering, and we see that's a really important first step alongside things like incorporating demand response into our capacity market. Uh, which happened for the first time last year. So, um, yeah, absolutely. And let's kind of start getting that grid to the, to the place where it can, can support us. Great.
0: Thank you for the comment. And, and actually, I think that I just heard something about in Texas, in fact, because of the way renewables were coming into the market, that they were trying to shift so that um, to encourage people to use renewable or to, to actually do certain things in the evenings and making that electricity free as a way to make better use of, again, in terms of
6: assessment is that um, subsidies for fossil fuels at the moment are globally five times higher than subsidies for renewables and well, like carbon. five times higher. Um, so I don't have that within that particular step. So I mean the prices that we're paying for in the UK are kind of um, like publicly available so it's about 50% more than gas generation at the moment, but that's that's the kind of price that has been paid as a part of that long-term uh, secure low-carbon energy mix that we're um, transitioning to at the moment. But I really mean, I think the point about fossil fuel subsidies is it's hugely important. Is that until we level that playing field, um, we won't be in uh, um, in the right place, and I think that's why we think. Um, initiatives like mission and motion are particularly important but yeah that's the particular staff that we have if it's helpful
0: technologies that we have with our
3: Yeah, a very interesting presentation, thank you. I'm a little confused though, for the, for the last couple of years I've been doing a report uh, commissioned by the European Union uh, uh, on various ways to enhance uh, regulatory collaboration between agencies across the Atlantic. Um, And I found that uh, regulatory agencies are talking to each other at multiple levels uh, to uh, improve uh, aircraft safety, uh, drug certification, to share the work, uh, very, very inefficient at this point, a lot of interest in making it more streamlined. So I was very excited to come here and find out what's been going on that I've been missing uh, between the Department of Energy and its counterparts in Europe to promote either uh, energy efficiency or renewable energy. And I have to say I didn't hear much about that in this talk. And then I noticed in the, uh, in the, uh, in the, sheet that the, that the goal is, is Transatlantic collaboration at the regional and member state uh, slash US state levels. So I'm wondering if you've written off uh, collaboration between the Commission and the Department of Energy or the US government at the federal level. Is the situation in the US just so toxic with Congress said that, that there's no hope of that? Um, I saw on the fuel cells, this thing on uh, this very interesting on fuel cells, uh, that seem to be like one area where the two sides could to promote this, this promising technology that might serve as a way of uh, bridging the gap in, in space and time between renewable and generation and demand, uh, offsite, But uh, could somebody speak to that and, 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 and uh, address just what is going on now at the federal level and the federal EU level and what you like sure. happen?
1: Okay, thank you. Tom.
2: So we will be happy to speak to the U.S. Sun perhaps here or else if you'd like to come here side. So, um, actually the Department of Energy has been very heavily involved in this, and uh, along with counterparts within the European Union, um, in helping uh, support or to look past dialogue that is occurring strictly at that level. And so there certainly is dialogue that's been quite quite critical. Uh, There's obviously that has been an important focal point like, from the multilateral discussions around this. But I think it's recognized that there's only so much that that kind of dialogue at that level can do to crack these nuts. We've got to get past that in a number of different ways. One of the ways is getting into South national government, member states, U.S. states, and localities, because they are so important to the advancement equation. The other thing is the uh, barriers in terms of time and distance for the kind of dialogue that occurs at the high levels that's happening now. now. So they I think commented on the fact that the nature of those uh, dialogue mechanisms are they're periodic rather than continuous. Uh, They tend to be, uh, for a number of good reasons, rather closed in comparison to open source um, opportunities that would be more applicable to a virtual uh, environment. Um, it's difficult for third parties, private sector, et cetera, to be able to interact in a fluid manner in those kinds of uh, exchange opportunities at the high levels of their current. There's those dialogues, as they're taking place now, are quite critical, but this issue is bigger than that in terms of its need and in terms of the collaborative platform that will be required to address renewable uh, energy. So it's looking at, very much recognizing the importance of those, but
1: looking at the enhancements and expansions and beyond. And
5: anything you might add? Yeah. Thank you very much for your observation. I think that's, that's true that uh, you don't see so much in the public what's really going on between the governments. Actually, um, there are several international, let's say, corporations, and it starts usually with an informational exchange because even if we agree on our targets that we want to have more renewable energies, we might not agree on the instruments how to, you know, uh, boost renewable energies, particularly between Germany and other countries, because not not all the other countries uh, agree on the feed and tariff structure, for instance. But what happens is there's a lot of exchange on um, critical and practical uh, challenges. Um, It started, for instance, a few years ago with the uh, um, energy ministerial as a very political level, you could say, but then uh, Germany, for instance, does a very technical and political exchange, it's called the Energy Transition Dialogue. There will be a huge conference uh, on minister level next March again, and we had one, I think, this summer. Uh, What we do on a much lower level uh, in the embassy over here is we have the Transatlantic Climate Bridge, and we're doing projects. enabling the exchange of practical, you know, experience, like we're bringing experts over who want to know what's going on here, particularly uh, demand response, for instance. There are several US federal states, uh, much advanced than compared to Germany. And the other way around, we have a lot of uh, experience now with grid management, because we have in several areas in Germany, we have uh, up to 50% of renewables in the old grid, and it works. Uh, so people are interested in how that works. Um, I know that there's a lot of information exchange between California and Germany, and then there are partnerships like um, a federal-states partnership between Minnesota and um, uh, North Rhine-Westphalia, for instance, a very fresh one from this year. So if you look at the state level, you see a lot of exchange on experiences, and these are concrete experiences, maybe not in the newspapers because that's, that's too technical. But it's happening, and of course everybody's quite aware, uh, who's working on that, that uh, it's very interesting to, to talk with people who just, you know, experienced that five years ago. What does it mean 30% electricity renewable electricity in the grid? And that is why a lot of people come over to Germany because we exactly experience that, and we have different technical solutions for that. Dale, uh, why don't you also
0: jump in on this, because so much happens in terms of the regulatory policies at the state level. And it's the locals that end up having to really implement so much, and you're doing a lot
4: of collegial work internationally. So I think I can bridge your question from both perspectives. I spent 20 years at the EP in the International Office, and I covered global S&T, but also with Europe. And I think the core problem is that, frankly, we as Americans are not used to this notion of learning from other people. That's, I think, the fundamental filter that precludes a lot of this knowledge and policy and technical transfer from overseas to the United States. And My experience was that if Germany and the United States, you know, this is, I've been out of the federal government for eight years now, but if Germany and the, federal, and the United States were going to work on something like climate, first and foremost, it was through multilateral fora. And the, conf, the conversation was quite confrontational through the UN or the OECD. If there was a desire to move towards a collaborative conversation, and there were many examples of that, it would be in the form of development assistance, AID working with GIZ or its predecessor to um, deliver solar stoves in Namibia, or uh, extract um, uh, sulfide diesel fuel in Jakarta, or share bikes in Cochabamba, Bolivia. the second part of the problem is, is, that, especially in this science and technology conversation, success tends to be defined by the State Department. And I don't think I'm being overly cynical when I say their version of success tends to be guys in lab coats shaking hands at photo ops and signing ceremonies. And a classic example of that, i all to respect my German friends, was the US German Science and Technology Agreement from 2010 to 2015, and it was just renewed. It's not framed on the US side in a problem focused, goal oriented context the way we talk about in the paper. It's not the State Department coming to EPA with its seven, eight hundred million dollar budget for research and saying, what are ways in which Germany's experiences with energy efficient nitrate extraction technologies for wastewater could come from Stuttgart or Berlin and be applied into Alexandria or Sacramento? And I think that that's a core problem of the first filter that I led my response with, which is this notion that we're not accustomed to learning. And I think, in a sense, what we're saying at the, at the local level is that we aspire to go to that knowledge transfer model that we characterize in the paper. We want very much to learn from and apply these technologies. And, um, and that's fundamental to this conversation with, 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 with Europe. Another part also, this goes way beyond paper, but transatlantic science and technology collaboration is very theoretically based. And there are very poor mechanisms for supporting applied research. and fund, There's just no funding for it. And I think that that is a, is a core issue too. So at the subnational level, it's, very strate- it's great that there are exchanges. It's wonderful that there's a conversation. Um, But it's hit the point now where I would suggest that the the kind of business model that we're talking about is very strategic, priority countries, again, problem-focused, goal-oriented, outcome-driven conversations, where in the case of the United States, we learn from these innovations and apply them. We're getting closer to that. It's very technical. You've got to bring in multiple partners, and it's got to be continuous dialogue. One handicap that we talk about in the paper and where I think we need to go from here is how does the transatlantic climate energy conversation go beyond just the one-week exchange? What is the work? How do we define the work that needs to be done leading towards outcomes with the deplaning at Dulles Airport or the deplaning of San Francisco International or Kennedy? That's where we are starting to see some real interesting work come to play, bring together the local electeds with their technical staff, with the transportation experts, with the housing authorities, with the school superintendents, and get the conversation going. We understand that the feed and tear system is very complex. We cannot copy it in Virginia. But that should preclude us from finding ways in which we maybe inform net metering on the basis of interconnection standards from Stuttgart in the Commonwealth. It's a very, very modest step in terms of advancing renewable energy policy in the state. In transatlantic learning context, it's a quantum leap. Our experience is going to be a lot different than Gainesville, Florida, which has a great success story. It's a wonderful model of this kind of transfer, leading to wonderful applications. Or Sacramento. But we need to be very, very strategic in how we work. We can't just be Pollyannish and say, we're going to go over, look at Freiburg and see grand visions of solar panels all over Richmond or Arlington. We have to be very, very strategic in how we work. That's, that, that's what I would suggest. And it's happening. It's great. and It's part of this conversation. But it needs to get stronger. And it needs, I would suggest, more institutional support. Um, and, and frankly, more kinds of conversations like these. Thanks. And I think on um, that